are listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. teaching text is Psalm 51. Psalm 51, um, verses 1 through 19. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Church, it's good to see you. Wow, we got a full house in here. You would have been forgiven uh, for staying home today because as cold as it is, there is no way that the gates of hell are advancing. But um, you are here nonetheless, and it is good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're coming. Dad jokes. Um, Friends, uh, I know some of you are are pretty new to our community. In fact, actually a good bit of you are new to our community. And so I just want to give you a little context to the the body that you're walking in, the community that you're walking in. You're coming into a people going through a kind of a transitory time, and not just obviously because of COVID, as you can imagine. Every church has gone through this kind of upheaval of the last uh, two years. 
but our church, and particularly on top of that, entered into the COVID season, um, and then shortly after, experienced this transition um, where, you know, not only did we lose uh, our way of doing things, and then being in this city, we lost a lot of the people, you know, that were holding us down, that were our, our family and our community. They then departed, but then, if that wasn't enough, we got a new name. And so this place changed. And then after that, uh, we lost a good leader. And that's particularly tough because um, it's hard if you lose like a bad leader, but you kind of understand it. And in some ways you are thankful for it. But when you lose someone that you love and it's like really good, that feels like this like can be really destabilizing, right? And so in the midst of that, we have people who have called this place home for a long time and have felt just completely disoriented because there's a new name, there's new faces, there's new people all around. And so if church is not about programs and it's not about buildings, but it's about people and all those people have changed, then what does this mean in my relation to it? And I can start to feel a little lost and all these questions can start to arise and that is natural and it is a good process that we have to engage in. But it's not a clean process, right? There's some messiness to it. So you can understand uh, late last fall, I having stepped into this, this position of leadership uh, and you know, trying to chart us forward out of this transition and into stable ground and into what the Lord is doing. And I came into this, this meeting uh, with our staff and a member of our staff. And, and uh, in this meeting, we, in every meeting, we kind of have just a time of like prayer and kind of just listening before God. And uh, right before that time, it was shared with me that, that you know, so-and-so uh, is, is feeling really disconnected when it comes to our church. This is a phrase that if I had a quarter for um, that I've heard in the last year, we would not have needed to do a Christmas offer. Um, <laughs> and so here comes this phrase, so-and-so feels disconnected, feels detached, feels like they don't know if or where they belong to this place. And in that moment, this weight came over me, like, like this heaviness set in, because it was just like, not again. Those heavy, heavy words. And so we entered into this, this time of prayer, and, and I'm sitting in this silence before the Lord. And what happens under the weight of those beliefs becomes these like these questions and these conflicted beliefs because I'm like, man, I thought like I thought we were getting somewhere. I thought that people were like starting to like come together. I thought there would start to be life. And so to hear that there's still someone else feeling disconnected, how could this be? This doesn't match up with some of the things that I'm experiencing or hoping or desiring for our body. And then after those questions came this, this kind of grief response a few weeks ago. Ryan talked about grief um, as sorrow. And right, and so we entered, and the this, this sorrow kind of came over me. But the thing about grief, uh, there's two ways you can view grief. You can view grief as a curse, which we often do, right? Um, I, I don't want to cry. I don't, I don't want to be down. I don't want to enter into the darkness of, of, of my soul and of my situation. And so oftentimes what we can do, there's this temptation, is that we can take grief and we can try to repress it, right? And so for me, it was like there was this temptation to just be like, you know what? 
There's nothing I can do. It's fine. I heard this yesterday. We'll just keep it moving. And then there's also this other grief response, because maybe you don't repress it, but you then just want to reject it, right? And so then there's this temptation to be like, well, you know what? Then like, let them just go somewhere else, you know? Like, there's this anger that I can just blame it on them, and, and, and how dare they be honest about their feelings? And I can just push it back. Both of those are broken, and it sees grief as a curse. But grief is not a curse, as Ryan told us. Grief is actually a comfort. What it does, it is a gift from God that allows us to move through our pain and to see what is the true source of our issue. What is that? What is really going on? See, on the surface, you would think that it was just those words, but in actuality, it wasn't. And I found this out because as I moved into the next meeting, uh, and I, I had this other time of prayer. We had this other time of prayer and silence. I'm sitting there before the Lord. And as I'm sitting silent before the Lord, the Spirit is taking me behind this weight. And I do feel a weight for people that feel still disconnected in this church and don't know if they are a part of these people. I really grieve for that because I can understand what you have lost over the last year and a half. And it's easy to say, well, it's been a year, let's move on. And that just isn't how heartbreak works. It doesn't work on some calendar invite. So there was that heaviness. But then behind that, as I was sitting with the Spirit, the Spirit kind of brought me behind that heaviness. And I found all this striving that was weighing me down. And the striving looked like this. How do I fix this issue? So what program do I need to create? What like prayers do I need to bring? What lunches do I need to have? How do I help people who feel disconnected like feel connected again? And so my brain is just like firing. Like we've tried all this thing. What, what else could be? So I'm following the grief. So it wasn't just that these people were going through it. I was also having this sorrow from like not being able to solve this Rubik's Cube of a problem. Then I go through that meeting and I enter into a meeting with our pastoral team and we do have this time where we just sit and allow the Lord to shepherd us. And the grief cycle continues. The Lord leads me behind my sorrow for people, behind my striving into this little locked room of my heart that I didn't actually think was there. And in that locked room was terror. And the terror was this. If these people that feel detached don't reattach, they will leave. If they leave, this church may fail. If this church fails, then I will be the cause of it. And if I am the cause of it, then I am a failure. And that, that belief was the heaviest weight chaining me to the ground. A scared little boy, not wanting to be found guilty, not wanting to be the one who dropped the glass, not wanting to be the one who broke, broke this like beautiful thing. And so I sat there and I was like, the spirit just opened this. And honestly, I swear, I didn't know that that was in me. And so when faced with it, I just began to weep. The only thing I can do is just cry out to God. As Paul tells us in Romans, how do we become saved? He says, well, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which means we believe that God has the power that even in our death to overcome it. 
to face the things that are killing us on our behalf. And so I confessed that <laughs> before our pastoral team. I told them what I was feeling. And then I just said, God, I do believe that you can lead this church forward. This is your church. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I have to rest in you. I work with everything that's in me as to you, but then I just ultimately have to rest in you. And from that place, I was able to start walking forward Still a little weary, but hopeful. Hopeful that what God is doing among us as a people. We're continuing our series, Deconstructing Renovation, and today we're, we're exploring what happens when we're at the bottom of our grief, when we come face to face with the lies we believe. Lies about self. Last time we talked about these truths about God, but today we're going to be talking about what happens at the bottom of grief. We often find lies about God or lies about ourselves, and we're going to talk about the process by which God moves us forward. Now, I led off of that story because I wanted to put some flesh and blood on these stages that we've been unpacking over the last few weeks. And maybe my story resonates with you, and maybe it doesn't, right? I don't know what you've come with in today in terms of like deconstructing or the pain that you're carrying or the, the things that you have lived that you are unpacking or need to unpack. Whatever incongruence in the world you've encountered, but maybe it's some external situation like my example, or maybe it's something internal. Maybe it's something that's been eating away at you, something that you've done or something you've been a part of, something you thought you wanted to be. But whatever it is, um, I, I spent time recently with a friend who, who's been tracking with this series and he said that you know, some of his past choices were just been, been weighing on him and it had become a chain around his neck and he was trying to seek out what it meant to be free from that stuff. And so I pray that the truth of God as we unpack his word will be revealed to you and that wherever you are and whatever you're deconstructing, whatever is weighing on you, that we can walk through this process of biblical renovation and find some health for our souls. And this is why, in an effort, in a desire to put some skin on this stuff, to show you what does this process look like, that we have decided to go through the Psalms. As Ryan uh, taught a few weeks ago, the Psalms serve as a mirror for the human experience. We can actually read into the Psalms and see ourselves or some, some facsimile of ourselves and we can find some hope, hopefully. We can find some resonance uh, in the scriptures, whether it's in our questions, whether it's in our doubt, whether it's in our joy or whether it's in our grief. Today's text is Psalm 51. Now, before we dive into the text itself, it's so important that we unpack the context of Psalm 51 because it really is going to seek to unlock the scriptures for us. So in your, in your text, maybe on your Bible or, or on your phone, there's a, there's a title above Psalm 51 that says, uh, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is important context. This context is referring to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 where we encountered David and this tumultuous, one of the deepest and darkest periods of his life. See, before we get into 2 Samuel, though, you have to understand who David is. Now, David 
has been God's chosen person since he was a child. As a little boy, God sent the prophet Samuel to go declare who would be the next king. And out of all of his, uh, out of all of the people, God chose this little shepherd boy, right? He wanted him to be it, right? So he had picked Saul, this, this like strapping young lad, but Saul was broken and, and, and evil in his heart, really. And so he raises up David to be this future king of Israel. And so the favor of the Lord has been on David his whole life. Not just the favor of the Lord, but the resonance of the Lord. The scriptures say, 1 Samuel 13, that, that David, that, that David, um, uh, sorry, said David was a man after God's own heart. That he shared the, the spirit of who God was. Jesus is called the better David. David is this picture of Jesus himself. And so David knew himself to be a righteous man of integrity, and he, and he saw himself as one fit to rule over God and to uh, over God's people and to judge them. David deeply desired the Lord. And so you can see the incongruence when one day David is out on a balcony and he sees a woman bathing and instead of turning in propriety, he stares in impropriety and then he goes a little bit further that he calls her over. And he, he summons her and then he finds out that this woman is married to another and not just another, one of, his, one of his lieutenants in his army. And so David, though, his lust guides him. And so he says, he, he, he lies with her, he has sex with her, and then he sends her back home. But he doesn't just send her back home as she was, he sends her back home pregnant. He doesn't know this yet, and so she sends back word when she finds out she's with child. And David then decides that he's got to fix this problem. And his problem for this is to take her husband, who is again a lieutenant in his general and, and a lieutenant in his army, and have him sent into the front of battle into a dangerous situation to face sure death. He actually commands the death of Uriah, husband of Bathsheba. Uriah is killed in, in warfare. And then David takes this woman that he had already taken and he makes her his wife. And he gets prepared to have this son. And as he's preparing, the, the prophet Nathan comes to David one day, and he says, Nathan, he, or David, and he gives him this, this imaginary situation. He says, he says, David, there's this man, basically, that had, he didn't have much. All he had was this, this one little lamb that he loved so preciously. And this other rich man had, had thousands of cattle. He had no need. He, he, he was a rich man. And then one day, there was a need for a, a sacrifice. And so the rich man instead of using many of his cattle, takes the one little sheep of, this, of this, this, this lovely, pure man. He takes that man's sheep and he sacrifices it. David is incensed at this situation, right? The righteous judge in him comes forward and he says that this man, this, 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 this greedy man should be put to death. And then you can listen right here. It's on the screen, 2 Samuel 12, 5. Says David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan says to David, You are the man. See, Nathan has presented this, this imaginary situation because he is showing David what he has done by stealing Uriah's wife. And in this moment, David runs into this incongruence of himself. He is not the man he thought himself to be. 
He doesn't look much like a man after God's own heart. So he enters this journey of deep grief, and for seven days he cries out to God, and he couldn't eat, and it's in this time that Psalm 51, David pins. And so as we enter this psalm, we find David at the bottom of grief, much like this renovation process we've been talking about. See, David has not circumvented the grief process, but he's made it to the bottom of his pit. He's made it to the places where the lies dwell. But how do we know when we've reached the bottom of our grief, when we enter sorrow, how do we know when we've made it past the circumstantial and made it to the causal, when we've made it to what's really eating at us? Well, we see this in the scripture because when we reach the bottom of the pit, we find clarity in our circumstances and causes. See, often as we travel through grief, you'll find confusion and chaos. You've ever experienced a loss, if you've ever had uh, a sudden uh, thing happen to you, this incongruence in the world and what you thought it would be, it often just becomes disorienting, right? Life becomes chaotic, and you're trying to find steady ground. I never thought that person would do this. I never thought that this could happen. What is the pandemic again? And so you're just kind of trying to stumble forward. But as we get led through, we then start to find the clarity of our circumstances. And this is what we see in David when he opens up the psalm and he says, Have mercy me on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. We're in the ESV if you're tracking along. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, David has recognized that he is in a circumstance where he needs help. He is in a sore predicament. He is unclean. And he is in need of salvation, of purification. David understands what the gig is. See, he's not just upset that he's been caught, but he realized that there's something innately broken in him. I need a thorough cleansing, he says. At the bottom of our grief, not only are our circumstances clear, but our causes are clear. What got us there is clear. Verses 3 and 4, David writes, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David doesn't blame it on dumb luck of that woman. No, but he recognizes that what has got him here is the result of the choices that he's made. And not just a choice, not just the, the taking of Bathsheba, the killing of her husband, but the flippancy towards it. So his circumstances and his causes become clear. But often we also know when we're in the bottom of our grief, when we're in the place where God really is ready to do work, when we have this, this honesty in our view of God himself. David uh, recognizes and sees himself very clearly. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David here highlights that this wasn't just a momentary lapse of judgment, right? Like, you've seen all the news today. It's like every time someone, like, accidentally says the N-word or, you know, some other transgression, and they're just like, that's, I, that's not me. It was just a moment. 
But no, David is beyond those excuses, and he sees, no, this is not just a momentary lapse of judgment, but this is an outflowing of an insidious sickness. He references his mother's conception. He says, I have been broken since I was conceived. This is who I am, a broken person. And then there's this honesty of God in his view of self. David says in verse 6, Behold, speaking of God, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And here is where our focus is today. This truth about God, a, a being that delights in truth in the inward being, God's desire for each of us is that we would be actually whole and able to stand in who we are. Fully integrated people, autonomous, interdependent, able to give ourselves away because we know who we are. And he wants to teach us wisdom and how to do that in our secret places. In short, God desires to work and to swap the lies of our heart out for truth. But we have to get to that place, much like I was in that meeting, realizing that there was a scared little boy that was bringing forth all this grief. And so it's in this place and at these realizations, when we can see clearly our circumstances, we can understand what got us there, when we can see who we are and we can see who God is, that then we have a choice. What do we do with it? The beauty of that place is that it's not requiring us to do any more work. Actually, what's required of us is surrender. The surrender to this work of God. David goes on 7 through 9, asking to be cleansed. But it's verse 10 that I want us to sit with for a second. David says this in crying to God in view of himself and God. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. He asked God not to take away his presence and not to take his Holy Spirit from him. But this creating me a clean heart, there is so much intrinsically there for what David is asking. Now you have to understand that the word there for create is bara. Shimei, I hope I'm saying that right. Shimei is Israeli. She's going she's gonna to help me. Uh, bara is this word. It, it, it's, it's, it's used only in the scriptures to refer to God, only God bara, only God creates, right? It's this, it's this idea that there's another Hebrew word, asa, that means to make, right? And so men, you and I, we make things. I may make a child, but I did not create a child, right? It is only God that can, that can form from nothing is the Latin ex nihilo, which means that I take nothing and I make something. That kind of creativity is only reserved for God, And so when David is asking God to create a clean heart in him, what, is he, what he is acknowledging implicitly is that the work of creating a new heart, he has nothing to do with and cannot maintain. He cannot take a part in it. This is solely the work of God. You have to create within me a clean heart. But this is what we also have to understand what David is actually asking for. Because, see, the heart to the Hebrew people and the heart to David is not just, uh, it's not just metaphorical. The heart in, in ancient Hebrew was the understanding of the very center of a person. It was believed to be the center of actually our physical bodies by which all life flows. It was our source of physical life. 
but it also was the place in which we stored our thoughts, that we think from our hearts. So it was the fountain of our thoughts. And not just that, but it was also the place where our feelings derived. And so it was both the physical location of ourself, the mental location of ourself, and the emotional location of ourself. This is the entire person. This is where our choices spring from. This is why Proverbs 4:23 says that God guard the heart because out of it flows life. And so what David is saying, I need you to do something that only I can do in the face of my grief, in the face of this brokenness that I've encountered about the world and myself. I need you to make me new. And only you can do it, God. Only you can do it. This work is a deep mystery. I can't tell you how it works when we get to the bottom of our grief and we surrender. The scriptures don't outline its form, but, but Paul actually gives us a, a little peek into this in Colossians. He writes this, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Here's the mystery. Here's that thing, that moment of surrender. And when God does his work, here's what it is. Paul says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. That word that hope means expectation. The mystery that happens when God creates a new heart is that he embeds within us an expectation for future glory. There's this phrase I heard recently called toxic positivity. And it's uh, birthed out of this like counterpoint to the guilt and shame culture that we have long been in. And, and there's this like, it's a reaction to this primary question I think we're all asking, which is this, am I good? I think we all came awake to it sometime in middle school, you know? And we're like, ah, if you were like me, I was the poor kid and like, I really wanted FUBU. Uh, <laughs> this is a true story. This is a true story. I really wanted FUBU. And, and, and it was like hot in the streets. My parents uh, finally bought me a FUBU jacket and I was so excited. The only problem was it was neon yellow and neon blue. Uh, and so I looked like a, a mag like a huge school bus in the middle of the night. And so everyone made fun of my FUBU jacket. <laughs> and I was so depressed because I thought that that was going to make me good. And I deeply wanted to know was, am I good? And so there's toxic positivity in our culture. What it tries to say is that like, hey, yeah, boo, you're good. You're good. You may make bad choices, but we all do. But deep down, you're a good person. Everything you do is really good from a good place. But the hard part is, if you've realized, if you've followed this toxic positivity movement, is it doesn't, it doesn't really work. Because if we're honest, Behind this question of am I good is this haunting reality that the answer is no. 
And people try to tell us and convince us that, no, 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 I am good. I am good. I am good. But then I see my depths. I see the scared places, and I know that I'm not. The scriptures does not say that we are good. Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Romans, Paul writes that all have failed and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. See, the truth about God, the, the, the truth that God is fixing is not the, oh, no, no, it's not you're bad, you're good. No, the truth that God is saying is, yes, you're bad, but you're not bad without hope. You're not bad without hope. You are desperately wicked, but I do a thing with wicked things. I make them whole. I make them good. And so God does not sit. Jesus doesn't come to us fooled about who we are. He doesn't come to us like some like super Mac just saying, baby, 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 you're good if you would just but love me. No, he says, I see you for who you are, broken and desperately wicked. And I want to fix it. Would you let me? Jesus is not saying you're as perfect as you are. He's saying I can make you as perfect as you were made to be. And this is the truth of self and the lie that has to be exchanged. That we are broken, but we are not broken without hope. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, but we have this treasure speaking of that mystery in jars of clay, these frail bodies, to show that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. Paul is saying you are broken and that's the whole point. Praise be to God that you are broken because it shows you what you could be when his spirit comes in. It testifies to this transformative power of the renovation of Jesus. Amen? Amen. And we have, to, we have to believe this. We have to wrestle with this. If we want to see his Black History Month, but guess what? We're never going to move into the fullness of reconciliation as a people. We're never going to be able to, to make any strides in racism when we realize, until we confess and can realize that, oh yeah, white supremacy is in me. And that's not just a word for like white people. That's also a word for me because I have, I have internalized my worth based on this perceived worth of others. And I've got to get it out of me. It's corrupted me. It's corrupted you. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I want to come in and I want to, you can own it. I've never met a racist in my life. I've just seen a lot of people do some racist things. But he's saying, hey, yeah, that's who you are, but I can make you something new. I can actually become your identity. I can show you who you are so you no longer need to define yourself by these arbitrary skin color of another. But you can stand on your own two feet no matter your shade. That's the invitation of God. That's what renovation looks like. That's the mystery. As we come face to face with our true self and all our brokenness, and we find his ever-surpassing love. And out of that, 
we find joy. Verse 12, David writes, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. There's two things here. We're going to wrap up. We're almost there. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. When we yield to this renovation process, when we come to the bottom of our grief, when we see the truth about ourselves that we are broken, and we see the truth about God that he repairs and restores broken things, well then, when we surrender to it, it creates within us a joy, a peace that surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds, that allows us to be fully integrated, that allows us to be whole. But it's not a permanent, it's, it's a thing that we have, we need time and again. Listen to what he says, restore to me my joy and uphold me. David's saying, uphold me because I'm, I'm going to try to fall again. So I need you to uphold me. I need the salvation of Jesus every day. I felt so good going to sleep last night. I was like sitting with the word and I was excited for today. And I was like, man, I was like feeling in the spirit. I was listening to some worship. And I got up this morning, my wife's away and I got this two and a half year old and he just tested my patience. And before I knew it, I needed the Lord three times this morning. (laughs) We need him again and again to uphold us. Here's some hard truths as we just wrap up. The band can come back up. Uh, there's some things I didn't cover in this passage. Uh, and in the second Samuel passage, there's some consequences for David's actions. The child that he has with Bathsheba um, doesn't live. And actually, this period of grief that David is in when he writes this, um, he's grieving because he's, he, in part, he is, he is praying and hoping that God will have mercy on him, not just in his renovation, but in his consequences. But God does not. As a direct result of his, of his actions, the child dies. There's a lot we can unpack. That's a whole talk about in and of itself. But I do have to say this. The renovation of God does not absolve us of our consequences. The things that we've done or the things that happen to us, they, they have consequences, and they will be borne out. Sometimes we find grace in those Oftentimes we do not. And the second is this, we're not islands. See, David's sin had ramification on those around him. Our sin spills over just like our joy spills over. We need this renovation because if we don't receive the renovation of God, if we try to circumvent our grief and we try to skip out on the process, we just end up bleeding on each other. Hurt people hurt people. Maybe you've heard that saying. And so we need this renovation so that the joy of the Lord can not just be returned to us, but to those around us. This is where David finishes. I just want to point out verses 13 and 14. says, And I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. God's renovation is for us, but also for the world. Brokenness is individual and systemic. Healing is individual and systemic. 
And so in the next two weeks, we're going to be unpacking what it means when we, enter to the, we get to the bottom of grief, we see the truth about God in ourselves, we, we surrender to his renovation, and then we learn to walk with the limp. So join us for the next two weeks as we do that. Let me pray for us as we move into worship. You can stand. I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you are in this process or in this journey. Maybe you're at the top wrestling with some conflicted beliefs. Maybe you're in the middle of that grief process trying to find Jesus. Maybe you're in the pit. You can see things clearly. And there's an invitation where Jesus says, I want to give you renovation. I want to just ask you, friend, if today is the day, do not wait. Do not yield. Yield today to, this, to, to Jesus' good work in your life. It's a very simple process, confessing with our mouth, believing in our heart. That's what it looks like to surrender. We have these rugs over here. Nothing magical about them. They're just rugs. But when we come to them sometimes and we fall on our faces before the Lord, the mystery is activated. <laughs> this becomes a place we can do with our bodies what God is doing in our hearts. Because so I want to invite you, if you need to come and just sit before the Lord, to hear his invitation, would you come? Don't delay. I mean, we need to confess with our mouth. We need to tell somebody, as Paul, as David says, I'm going to tell, tell transgressors of what's going on. This is not an individual process. It's a communal process. So there are going to be people up here to pray for you. They may even move throughout the crowd. If you need someone to pray, avail yourself to it. Come and allow someone to minister to you, to speak the truth of God into your hearts. And you can do that for one another. We are all a, a royal priesthood of believers. And then we're going to sing. Because the scriptures say that the Spirit of the Lord, the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. And so we're going to lift our voices and we're going to worship together. Glory to our God. That his spirit would fall among us and maybe... Maybe renovation will break out. Amen. Let me pray this over us. It's in verse 15. Oh Lord, open our lips and our mouths would declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. But your sacrifices are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And so we come and we worship you. We respond to you. Amen.